This is The Secret Life of Writers, a new interview series from inside the literary world. My name is Gemma Birrell, and I'll be speaking with some of the world's most interesting and visionary writers and creative icons about what they're working on now and how they balance life and art. Today I'm speaking with award-winning novelist, nature writer and podcaster Melissa Harrison. Melissa's podcast, The Stubborn Light of Things, has the same title as her book that was named the Sunday Times Nature Book of the Year. It feels like she's taking us by her side as she walks through the greens of London and the English countryside, sharing warm and poetic observations of the natural world. There's a joy in her lush descriptions with the magic of frog spawn, seahorses in the Thames, murmurations of starlings, elfin dog violets and more. Melissa's writing is finely observed, musical and intimate, which is echoed in her podcast with her soothing voice and recordings of the fields and birds. Melissa also contributes a monthly nature column to The Times, which the book was based on, and writes for various other publications. Her most recent novel, All Among the Bali, was described by John McGregor as a masterpiece. Her other novels are Clay and At Hawthorne Time, and she's written a non-fiction meditation called Rain, Four Walks in English Weather, and also edited four anthologies of the seasons. Melissa, hello. Thanks for speaking with me today. Hi, Gemma. It's good to talk to you. Can you start off by describing where you are in the world and what it's like there this particular morning? I can. I am in a very old labourer's cottage built in 1701 in a tiny rural hamlet in Suffolk, which is in the east of England, where that big bulge kind of sticks out into the sea. I'm about nine miles inland from the coast and I'm surrounded by arable fields and woods. And what is the light like at this time of year? That's something that I love about your writing in all of your books, actually. Can you describe that? It's December and the light is very low and very warm when it breaks through the sort of thick December clouds. But on a clear day, it's golden and the sun casts long shadows. It's really beautiful. And how long have you been in Suffolk now? I moved here from London in 2017. I arrived in December and it was a bit of a shock. You know, I I wasn't in this cottage. I was in a, a rental, but I didn't know... I didn't know how to, well, I did know how to light a fire, but I didn't know how to light a fire very well or very consistently. And there was no central heating. I didn't know where to buy wood, whether I was being ripped off. I didn't know how much it would cost. I didn't have a car. So I was walking about two kilometres to the station and back because I was still working in London and arriving back at about nine o'clock at night. So doing the walk by myself in the moonlight across the fields. There's such an art to lighting a fire, isn't there? I'm an expert now, and it's one of those things <laughs> I've learned not to mention on Twitter. There are certain <laughs> subjects where if you even go anywhere near them, you get a lot of advice, unsought or sought. And fire lighting is one, barbecues are another, <laughs> and mosquitoes and rodent oh, control. mosquitoes, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've had that experience. <laughs> yeah. So we don't talk about fire lighting. <laughs> Now, before Suffolk, you lived in London for two decades. And for some of that early period, you've said that you didn't notice the passing of the seasons and things like the winter solstice. How did that change? I think if you live in a built up area of any kind, it's very easy to switch off from the cycle of the year because your home is probably centrally heated 
and your workplace will be too and or air conditioned in some cases and you know the shops stay open in the evenings and there are street lights and it all becomes you know the, the seasons really become just about weather you know you get whether it's a, a rainy day here or not and what what you have to wear and maybe it might be about fashion as well and you know spring looks and autumn looks mm. <laughs> but here it's about survival you know if I don't I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to die overnight if I don't have a fire, but I have to think about, do I have enough firewood? Is it in the house before it gets dark? It starts getting dark here about proper three at this time of year. Is it dry? Have I brought it in for enough nights to stack it around the fire and get it dry? The mornings are long and dark. Sometimes it's only light for a few hours. And you see that affecting the wildlife around you as well. It's such a short foraging period for the birds. You know, they have to be busy. They have to get up enough uh, fuel to make it through the night, which is very long and very cold. So all the small birds are, are dying in the cold snaps. They're just dying in their sleep. And, you know, that's sort of going on all around you. You really feel connected to it in a completely different way. It's so interesting because you don't think that birds will actually die in that weather. You think that if they're out there they would be okay. You kind of assume that. Well, if you don't know the birds like you do, for example, intimately. Yeah, you get big crashes in the numbers of small birds when there's a tough winter here. In terms of how you actually started to become more attuned to the natural world, can you describe that a bit? Because you're in London and you're going to work every day. What happened to start kind of making you more in tune to the world around you? Well, I think a big Part of it was um, I moved to a flat that actually had a little garden. So I, I moved, you know, I don't know, um, probably close on half a dozen times during my time in London and eventually to a little garden flat. And that meant that we could get a dog, my husband and I. And we got a rescue dog called Scout. And that meant walking her every day. And that meant discovering little parks and commons and greens and pockets of, of places where she could be let off the lead and go and sniff around and doing that twice a day every day you know no matter the weather because she needed to go out it brought me into contact with the green places in the city and London is a really green city and it taught me to notice how a place changes over time so you would little details they sound sound silly really but something like I remember one year a tree blew down and blocked one of the paths on Tooting Common where we used to take Scout and so the, the footpath had to divert around this tree and eventually after a few months the tree was taken away but the footpath still had a bend in it and I knew that and the other regular dog walkers knew that but other people wouldn't and I love that I love that sense of connection and knowing you know knowing that the bird cherries were having a better year in terms of blossom than they did the year before seeing a waxwing winter when you get a sudden eruption of these beautiful birds from Scandinavia and, and the next year you'd, you'd see none you know feeling that change in the natural world and the effects of the seasons it transformed my life it really did it made London survivable and not just survivable but a joyful place to be you know I suddenly realized how green it was and how beautiful and how connected I could be to nature without, you know, having to, to leave. And that was wonderful. That's, you know, that really inspired my first book and everything I've written since. And I love what you say in that book along the lines of you need to tune in. You don't have to actually move out of the city if you're craving nature. You just need to tune into it. I think that's really spot on and it kind of highlights the beauty that you can see in a city and I think that's really important because in this country, I think it's something like 87% of us now live in 
in urban areas, um, which is, you know, not just cities, but places that are built up. 80%. Yeah, I think it's 87 now. And, um, you know, if we just see nature as the preserve of people who live in rural villages, as I do now, or we see it as somewhere you have to drive to see, then we've got a license to kind of despoil it, really. You know, if it's only for a few people, you can build over the rest of it and it doesn't matter as long as you can drive to a national park and have a nice walk. The fact is it's all around us and there are a lot of species that can and will adapt to live alongside us, particularly if we can learn to tolerate them, which means getting along with animals that we might not like. Then we can have more richness around us. That's up to us, really. And I love the way you describe that in The Stubborn Light of Things, your recent book. Now, can you describe how it did become a book and a podcast separately? Because they're very different, of course, but there's so much to gain from both. Well, the podcast was an accident, really. Um, The book was already uh, due to come out and my publishers, Faber and I, had discussed doing a little bit of audio, maybe uh, four episodes recorded in a studio where I might talk to other nature writers, but we'd made no plans, nothing had been actually set in motion and then Covid happened and I used to work at a dance music magazine called Mixmag and Mixmag uh, was shuttered very quickly because we lost all our advertising and so I was suddenly uh, full-time at home in Suffolk and realising that I was incredibly lucky. I'd moved here and I could walk out and spend hours in the fresh air without passing another person or being at risk in any way And I was thinking about all of those people that are in built up areas, including my niece, who was um, she's high risk. So she was in a one bedroom flat in South London with no outside space at all. And I just thought I've got this privilege that I can share with people. So I I got on the phone to Faber. God bless them. They were in the middle of um, trying to help everyone work from home. And there's me on the phone going, sorry, can you just send me a field recorder? So I don't mean to be a problem, but I've got this idea. And, And God bless them, they did. And we got the first episode out within nine days. It was uh, me and my friend Peter Rogers, who is a a musician and audio producer. And we just threw ourselves into it, really. We didn't really know what we were doing. Never made a podcast before. But we both worked in magazines. And I think that really helped because we realised that to make regular weekly content, there needed to be some repeated elements that would form the, the structure. So we quickly sat down and planned out that we would have a guest and we would have a reading from Gilbert White. And Peter threw himself into being Gilbert White, the 18th century parson naturalist. God bless you know he's he's a drum and bass producer from Luton. Um, And he had to sort of pretend he was this sort of bewigged, you know, person with a quill. He reads him beautifully. He really does, doesn't he? He does. He does. He does a fantastic job. So, But I don't think we realised what it would mean to produce six months worth of content um we loved it but by the end we were quite quite exhausted actually (laughs) well it really became a balm for a lot of people during this pandemic hasn't it like from all around the world I imagine did you get a lot of response from people in all different places yeah yeah we had no idea we thought this will be as much for us as for anything it'll be fun and it'll be it'll help us feel that we're contributing we had no idea you know, if people would find their way to it or not. And it ended up with listeners all around the globe, as you say, and people writing in and and are still writing in uh, to tell us what it meant to them, to tell us their stories and and their stories of lockdown and their stories of loss and grief. And um, it's been 
very moving and a responsibility as well. When we realised what was happening, realised we had to be, we had to look after people and we had to be very careful with people and hold people very gently. And we knew from the start that we were going to finish the series in October and realised we needed to trail that and make sure people knew and not kind of abandon people just as, as the second wave was starting to hit lots of places. But I'm, I'm so glad of the opportunity to do it. I loved it. I really did. It's so interesting, that, that idea of abandoning people, because it really does feel like there's a closeness, there's an intimacy when you're sharing. And I think what is really unusual about it as well is there's not actually many, I mean, I can't think of any other podcasts um, out there that have that same calm. And the sound is absolutely beautiful with the kind of the sound of the fields, of birds, of at one point bells ringing. Like there really is, um, it's an unusual, very kind of calming experience, isn't it? Thank you. Well, I don't know if it was for well, you. But no, it, was it, for really, us. It, it really was. I mean, there were there were some tricky moments. There was a, a whole set of recordings of nightingales that I lost because I'd got water into the into the recorder. Oh no! Um, and didn't realise <laughs> till I got home. But you know, things like the, the bell ringers was just such a, a brilliant moment. I had no idea that the so the local bell ringers in the next village they couldn't get into the church to ring the bells, and they were all really missing bell ringing. So they were having a socially distanced handbell ringing session in someone's garden. And I happened to walk past and, and had the recorder running and, and recorded them. And it, I was standing there grinning, thinking, this is brilliant. This is great audio. You know, it was such a touch. Um, so we were really pleased with that. But we knew from the start we wanted a lot of silence and we wanted we wanted to leave a lot of space for the world to seep in, not always be talking, not always be explaining just to allow people to feel that they were out in the open air with me because that's what people were missing. There's such a power in silence, isn't there? Yeah, it can be quite scary as well. Sometimes you feel like you want to rush to fill it rather than let it unfold. And I think Peter as well with the production, he was great with that, but there were bits where I was going back to him and saying, no, just let that go a beat longer just put a beat in here put a put a beat in here and let people you know let what's just happened sink in before we move on to the next thing now one of the things that stands out is your call for all of us to recognize the wildness wherever we are and to live with it rather than against it is that a similar thing to what you were discussing about living in the city and observing or how do you live with wildness it means unlearning a lot of the attitudes to the natural world which we've been brought up with. And some of them are very subtle. You know, some of the language we use around nature, you know, even just going for a walk, you, you can be conquering a mountain. You know, there's a lot of language of winning and testing ourselves and beating. And instead of, you know, being with or being going into a landscape or, you know, feeling rather than doing and I think we need to question a lot of our attitudes to particular creatures as well. We divide living things often into wildlife and then pests. So we call things pests or vermin. And then, you know, that's a process of othering. Once we've given something that designation, then we can eradicate it without any guilt. And when you think that the passenger pigeon was at one point um, thought to be the most numerous bird on the planet and we wiped them out within a generation, a single generation, and they're gone. We are infinitely powerful and that's really important to remember when we're 
speaking dismissively about birds like urban pigeons and we say they're flying rats. And, you know, even using rats as an example of something filthy and disgusting. And a lot of these animals, the reason that they're numerous and the reason they're successful and the reason that we see them is because they can live alongside us. And the reason they can live alongside us is because they're very like us. They are adaptable and resourceful and clever. And I think that there's a lot of projected disgust in our responses to them. What we're really disgusted with a lot of the time is ourselves. I think animals that feed particularly on our waste, so anything that's eating out of bins or, you know, off the pavement, we're disgusted with. But that's our waste. We made the mess. (laughs) It's funny, you also, in your book Rain, which I really, really enjoyed reading as well, you also discuss the way we are animals. We're all animals and maybe we're afraid of that, but we are. And it's good to go out and get wet, for example, and see the nature in the rain and see the look of it and and feel it and experience it in that different way rather than always being protected. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it teaches us resilience to be exposed to nature a little bit and to realise that, you know, I'm not talking about extreme conditions, of course, to realise that we can be uncomfortable and that's okay and you can come home and get dry and warm again or cool down or whatever it is. You know, I, I think that's a reminder of our physical natures and our limitations as well, which I think we're not often brought into contact with these days and we find that very alarming but also quite fascinating. You know, we're quite fascinated with with explorers and with people that really push themselves to their limits. What I really enjoy is putting myself out there in the elements in which my species evolved. You know, we evolved for millennia to be in contact with things like, you know, there's soil bacteria that uh, have been shown to have an effect on depression, you know, and on serotonin levels. There are particular patterns of light that if you, you know, if you walk through dappled light in a forest can have effects on your mood. The the science that's coming out now around the positive effects of being in contact with nature, it's not surprising to any of us. We all know when we read these things, you know, that it makes sense on some level. And now we're finding out the reasons, the reasons for that. You know, there's a, a, a famous study about recovery rates from operations and people that had a view of trees were found to need less pain relief and to be discharged more quickly than people that had a view of buildings. I mean, that's extraordinary, but it's also, you know, it makes complete sense. We evolved, we didn't evolve indoors, we evolved outdoors. And the more of that I think we give ourselves, you know, within reason, the better. And another really interesting element that you speak about, I think in Rain, but also in your recent book, was what what's happening with children today and the fact that there's less independence, there's less freedom, there's less places to run around and explore and kind of lose yourself. And even the idea of not being able to pick up a feather anymore because they're considered dirty. So the whole way we're raising our children and their whole concept of, of freedom and just it's such a different world that people are growing up in, isn't it? It is. And it's really hard. You know, I'm, I'm not a parent and I wouldn't for a moment seek to tell anyone how to raise their children. And the dangers that people are exposed to with the 24-hour news cycle and the way that we report things like stranger danger are terrifying. And, you know, I can completely understand why you might want to just have a satellite tracker on your kids 24-7. I was lucky enough to grow up 
in the late 70s and early 80s when there was a lot less traffic. And although there was the same amount of stranger danger, it wasn't at the forefront of people's minds in the same way. So I was part of the last generation, really, that was allowed to play outside unsupervised all day. And I think that's one of the reasons behind the, the boom in, in nature writing at the moment is these are all people around my age who are looking around and realising that the world has completely changed and what that means for children. You know, I, one of the things that breaks my heart a little bit is when I go out and I see den building and it used to be something that we all did as a secret thing that had nothing to do with grown-ups. You would have a den in the woods and, you know, the teenage <laughs> boys might keep all sorts of dirty magazines there or it might be, you know, your place that you defended against the other gangs or whatever it was. It was a secret thing and it had a purpose. And now I often see dens being built as a sort of activity it's directed by adults and with the kids kind of not really knowing what this is like it's a oh. thing that the adults are standing there and going you know this is great building dens come on let's build a den and, and the kids are a bit <laughs> kind of like what 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 happens now we've we've leaned some sticks up against a tree now what happens and then everyone goes home and it's sort of been hollowed out and emptied of of meaning and and you know it's sad I don't know what the answer is but it is sad because I think one of the the things that the freedom that we had certainly taught me is a kind of responsibility that comes from being allowed to take risks and I think if a child is never allowed their agency it becomes very hard to judge risks and I think children can end up less independent and perhaps less safe so you know it I've got friends who live in parts of the world where their kids can play outside. And, you know, my nephew has been brought up to use an axe from the age of seven. He was allowed to chop wood and he's been very responsible and he's never hurt himself. But, you know, you can't have kids in inner city London running around with axes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really good thing to have that strength and independence and that feeling of achievement, I imagine. Yeah, you know, only 40 or 50 years ago, every small boy certainly and some girls would have had a pocket knife. Now, one of the things that you helped with that you talk about in the book as well was working on the woodland at Knights Hill so children could use it. And I think Another thing about the book is that there's concrete change from some of your writing and some of the tweets, I think. I remember the coverings of the trees, for example. The council ended up taking them down. That was a wonderful thing, wasn't it? Yeah, there's been a, a bit of a trend in this country for netting trees to stop birds nesting, which is just, it's shocking on a level that it just hits really deep. It's really struck home with people who don't even have that much of an interest in nature the idea that you would cover a tree with netting and the birds can't make a nest it's just wrong isn't it we just know it's wrong and this is happening on sites where they're hoping to get planning permission to develop and once a bird is nested it's protected and the, the nest can't be disturbed so some developers have been doing this incredibly cynical thing and um, I saw a row of these trees netted in Guildford which is the, the town I was born in and just snapped a quick picture and popped it on Twitter and there was a sort of tsunami of responses which I wasn't <laughs> expecting at all and the nets were removed. Not like the firewood but good ones this yeah. time. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think it, it really it really made a difference to people and uh, yeah the nets were taken down and then lots of other people started reporting similar sites. I really hope that that's just off the table now as a strategy it's awful. 
Now, talking about birds, I loved your descriptions of the birds. And can you describe to us how you started to learn bird songs and birds and what that process was? Yeah, it's something that I think we forget as adults that we can learn new things from scratch. So a lot of people will say to me, oh, I can't do bird song. And I think, well, it's you haven't started learning yet, that's all. <laughs> if you tell yourself that this is a, a new thing that you're interested in and you're going to devote some time and interest and energy to it, anyone can learn to recognise bird songs. It just it depends, you know, how far you want to go with it. So, you know, I, I can't do gulls or shorebirds, but pop me in the middle of a British city and I'm getting better at rural birds now. I'm in Suffolk and I'm pretty good. I can walk around and tell you what's what's going on around us. And there's different reasons to do it. Some people, I guess it's part of building up a tick list of birds or or just for the pleasure of feeling good at something. For me, it's about recognising the abundance that's around you. It, it's not so much the kind of wanting to feel like an expert it's that once you can pick out one bird from another, you realise that there's more around you than, than you thought, you know. So instead of there just being two or three birds around you, suddenly you realise there's seven or eight or ten or eleven or, or more. And so the world becomes richer and more particular. And and I just, I just get enormous pleasure out of that. So I try and add a couple more each year. My method is to try and see the bird that's singing if I can see it and then ID it, I find that it goes into my head better. But even things that at first you can't tell apart, if you keep at it, your brain will learn to distinguish them. So black cap and blackbird used to sound the same to me and they don't at all anymore. So my brain has worked that out and that's that's in there, that's learned now. So, you know, we do forget that it is a process. You can do it in a few years if you want to. Is it also about being particularly connected to your place, to the land that you know intimately? Would you be as interested in other countries of the birds, of the wildlife, or is it something that is quite particular to the land that you're from and, and where you live? That's a really good question because, I mean, on the one hand, if you put me anywhere and pointed me at some wildlife, I would be interested. <laughs> I'm inspired and interested in England, not even Britain. It's the idea of England that fascinates me. My mother was born and brought up in um, what's now Pakistan, and she was Anglo-Indian. And she was brought up with an idea of home as somewhere she'd never been here. But she was brought up with this idea of it as uh, kind of really through rose-tinted spectacles and really quite out of date. But just this sort of promised land really this beautiful place that she knew through books and through literature and then they came here in 47 after partition and she got to actually find this place that she'd grown up learning about and the books that she read us kids I've got five siblings and she read us all of the classics things like Cider with Rosie and Lark Rise to Candleford and A Country Child by Alison Utley and The Little Grey Men and all of these sort of pre, not pre-industrial, no, but they're sort of pre-modern age, um, the last days of rural village life. And it's a vision of England that is incredibly beautiful and incredibly alluring and incredibly dangerous. It excludes a vast proportion of who we are here and what we're really like. That tension I just find fascinating. The idea that 
the picture of England that people have, which is often a rural village with green fields around it and a little church with a spire and a village inn with a sign and a pump on the village green. What that leaves out, I mean, it leaves out vast swathes of of England. It leaves out fishing villages. It leaves out mining areas. It's very southeastern. It's Anglican. It's wealthy and it's white. But it still has this incredibly powerful place in the English imagination and it leads to dark things. It's interesting when you're talking about your mother and I remember reading about the rapture that she felt for that English countryside, which I thought was a beautiful description. But talking about the darkness as well, you've explored some of that in your fiction, haven't you? Yeah. um, All Among the Barley was originally going to be a book about um, farming in the interwar years and about the death of horsepower. So it was a period when um, the last heavy horses were on the land, but being rapidly replaced by tractors, which had been invented really in the First World War. And it interested me that there were these men, horsemen, who this was a, a trade that was passed down in families. And it had a great deal of magic in it. You know, it was there were spells, really, that you used to control a horse and you could charm a horse so that it wouldn't move for anyone else and it would stand there all day uh, to make them go backwards. You know, there were lots of folklore traditions like hanging a hold stone on a loop of wire over the stable door to prevent nightmares and witches that would ride a horse during the night. And within a generation, all of that folklore was lost. Often the same men who had been trained in this magic and initiated into it at 13 or 14 were asked to look after the tractors. So it started off a book about that and then as I was writing it the referendum happened here and Trump was elected and I felt the world around me shift and I suddenly realised that this nostalgia um, that I was so drawn to and was trying to conjure up for people had this incredibly dark side and I realised that you know I needed to tackle that and that meant writing about fascism and that felt terrifying I wasn't sure if I was allowed I'm not a historian and I hadn't tackled anything as big picture as that before I couldn't have carried on with the book as it was. So I put on my big boy pants and went to the British Library (laughs) and sat and looked through some of the the publications um, that were produced by the British Union of Fascists, which were terrifying in their ordinariness. You'd have a page with a piece on rural crafts and a recipe for jam and then a call to exterminate Jewish people. And I was just just horrified. I mean, you know, of course, anyone would be horrified, but it was just the kind of the nor- the normalness of it and the way it was speaking to just, you know, everyone, ordinary people in rural places. And I discovered that these small proto-fascist groups sprang up all over the country and in lots and lots of tucked away places. And so that came into the book. And I imagine fiction was a much, much richer area in order to explore a lot of those themes and ideas and characters, potentially. Yeah, I mean, I definitely wouldn't have, have tackled them in nonfiction. I would have 
been concerned that I might get something wrong. <laughs> but I guess that leads me to ask, what do you find that fiction offers you that nonfiction doesn't and what do you kind of get from both separately? When I started writing, I didn't think I was going to be a novelist. I'd had this sort of epiphany about being in touch with the natural world in London and I really wanted to share that with people and what I wanted to do was be a nature writer. But I thought that you had to be an expert. I thought you had to be a botanist or a zoologist or some kind of ologist. And also, <laughs> and also I was living in London and I thought, well, that's not right. You have to live in the countryside. So I thought, well, I'll try I was writing these little fragments, little sketches, um, just vignettes, really, um, of what I saw around me in South London. And I had a, a friend that said that he had a friend who was setting up as a writing coach. She'd spent many years in publishing. She was setting up as a coach and she was looking for clients and, and she would have a chat with me for an hour for free. So I went to see uh, this woman, Kathy Gale. And she looked at my fragments and said, you're writing a novel, oh. at which point I burst into tears um, oh. <laughs> because I had no idea. And she said, right, you need to, you know, put them together and work out what, what the plot is, which I did. And I found that writing about the natural world, but using characters and story helped me, I think, get to an audience that I, I might not have reached otherwise you know, there, if I had published a book that was, you know, here's, here's, here's a book about lovely urban nature in London, some people might have bought it, but, you know, probably people that were already interested in nature. And the book I published, Clay, I had people contacting me and saying, oh, I, I picked it up, I didn't know what it was about. And now when I'm walking to the bus stop in the mornings, I notice the missile thrushes in the trees above me. Or I, I didn't used to walk to the bus stop and now I do because I've noticed these things that you pointed out in the book. Oh, that's so heartening, isn't it? Oh, it was lovely. As a first-time writer as well. And somebody did this wonderful thing. They bought a copy and left it out on a bench in London for other people to find, which I loved. Oh, that's so special. Yeah. I love that defining moments, that idea of kind of these defining moments in our lives. And, and you talk about that as well, the impact your English teacher had on you when you were much younger. Yeah, Mrs Jessett. She was a wonderful woman. I had... I think I was I was primary school, so I must have been maybe 10, something around then. And we had a piece of creative writing we were asked to do. She said, go and do some descriptive writing about the natural world. And I described a pond in the next village that was covered in ice. And she kept me back after the class and told me it was good. But she, she didn't just say, this is good. She said it like she really meant it. She looked at me and said, this is really, really good, you know. And I, I heard the kind of gravity in what she was saying. But I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know there was a job that was writing about nature. And in fact, there wasn't really a job that was writing about nature for a long time until the sort of boom that we've been having for the last 10 or 12 years. But it really stuck with me. I'm not somebody that's always written at all. I was not very confident as a child. And I think creativity requires risk-taking. And I didn't want to take any risks. I wanted to, to get a, a good mark. And that's <laughs> not the same thing. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Like the kind of the steps that, that people take in their lives to get where they are. And I'm curious, was it also the kind of the nature writers? When did you start reading some of those other nature writers? And who were they? Who were the ones who had a big impact on you? 
I think one of the first modern nature writers I read was Kathleen Jamie, who's a Scottish writer, and her collections, uh, first one was Findings, and then there was Sightlines, and her current one is Surfacing. And she is an incredibly deft and incredibly subtle writer. And then there was Mark Cocker with his book uh, Crow Country and Robert McFarlane and uh, Nan Shepherd and J.A. Baker. And once, you know, it's one of those things like falling into an internet rabbit hole. Once you you read one (laughs) and then you you pick up the, the references to other books and you go back and back and back. And, you know, before long it was Gilbert White and... Adrian Bell, who inspired me to write about East Anglia, and it was writing about East Anglia that brought me out here to live here. And you look back and you put it all together, but it's a sort of series of chances, really. So leading on from when you formed those fragments and turned them into the novel, into Clay, the first novel that you wrote, how was it? How did you get published? Did you have the experience that so many writers have of being rejected by different publishers initially, or was it smooth sailing? How did it go for you? I wish I had a really good origin story about this, but it was quite smooth <laughs> and quite dull, actually. The writing coach, Cathy Gale, encouraged me to enter a competition. Well, she said, go and find a competition. And I, I sort of said, no, no, I don't want to. I don't want to. It's too exposing. I can't. And then I did. And it was a tiny competition. I'm not sure that that many people actually entered, but it was the John Muir Trust who look after wildland in Scotland and elsewhere. And it was a wild writing competition and I won. And she took that along with the sort of not quite novel, but, you know, bits of fragments that were building up to an agent who she knew. And he invited me in for a chat. And I did this, I did this ridiculous thing of thinking this is the most terrifying thing in my life. And I need to be confident when I walk into this room so I thought I will wear incredibly high heels because <laughs> I'm five foot two. And I thought, yep, the thing that will make me feel powerful is height. It made me feel ridiculous. I couldn't walk in them properly. <laughs> I felt like a complete overdressed fool. Um, but, you know, he, I think uh, Peter Strauss looked past my ridiculous clothes and, um, and I was taken on by the agency. And how did you end up getting Jennifer Hewson? How did that happen? Jenny was Peter's assistant at the time, but she was setting up on her own as an agent. So when she was ready to take on her own portfolio, she invited me to join her. And I've been with her ever since. She's been absolutely brilliant. She's a shaping force. She's the the person that tells me when I'm being ridiculous, which is quite often, and makes me rewrite things that I don't want to. (laughs) I spoke to Jennifer recently and I loved her description of your voice and the strength of your voice. And she was saying that to her mind and also to Deborah Rogers, her her predecessor, of course, her kind of mentor, that was the mark of a great writer, that strength of voice across different forms and that she could tell anything that she read of yours, she would know that it was yours even if your name wasn't there, which I thought was really special. And I think that's, that's a lovely description really of a great writer. And it made me wonder as well about developing your voice. Did you find that it took some years or was it a process with that voice or is it something that's a constant process that's still, that the voice is still in process? How do you find that? Um, It's a bit of a strange question. Well, no, no, it's a good question. It's just that it's something that doesn't feel particularly conscious to me. It's something that goes on below the level of intention, I think. It made me think of there was an extract in All Among the Bali when Eddie was talking about having a voice or looking for a voice of her own and being derivative of, you know, writing kind of Shakespeare or whatever it was. And it just immediately made me think, well, that's the opposite because you have such a strong one. You really do. Yeah. 
It's funny when people do that and I realise that I've put myself into a book in a way that I hadn't intended to. I know. My first book, I didn't think I was writing about myself at all. And I invented a main character who was a boy and an only child and uh, growing up in London. And then I was doing my first reading and I suddenly realised that I'd actually just written about myself. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It kind of keeps happening. (laughs) I feel like I control about a third of what I produce consciously. And I feel like another third is subconscious and the final third is contributed by the reader. Back to your, when you first got published, how were those early years as a writer? Did you find that from that moment things kind of developed and flowed or was it a difficult process at all in those early years in terms of, in terms of you know, what was required from an editorial perspective? Like tell me about that. Yeah, um, I think... Editorially, I had spent some years working in publishing at the very beginning of my career. And after that, I worked freelance. Can I ask what you were doing in publishing? Yeah, I was an editorial assistant and then a junior editor for nonfiction, firstly publishing mind, body and spirit books, uh, sort of new age stuff. And then I worked at Virgin Publishing, publishing celebrity autobiographies and things like that. Oh, that would have been entertaining. It was, God, that time, uh, it was some of the best years of my life. I worked a lot with Sean Ryder and there was, oh, it was great fun. Anyway, so a lot of the editorial side of things was familiar to me. And I also worked freelance as a copy editor and a proofreader as well. So a lot of that process was familiar and very known and comfortable. The part that was harder for me was the psychological side of it. It was... You know, I I found and still find writing often very painful. Um, Not so much my journalism. You know, I've worked for years in magazines and working to commission feels like a job and it's easy and I enjoy it. But making stuff up, going inside and trying to go where the fire is hottest, I find very difficult. And in the early years, particularly, I remember it feeling like holding a hand on a radiator until it burnt and then I'd get up from the laptop and walk out of the room and then I'd have to force myself to go back in and put my hand back on the radiator and it it cost and it hurt and it wasn't fun and also at the beginning you know there was so my, my mother really wanted to be a writer and it was her main ambition in life and she had a radio play broadcast on radio four here but she wasn't successful in print and my childhood was filled with mum at the typewriter and rejection letters and you know piles of paper and it being this very fraught thing that meant so much to her and I don't think I could have started out as a writer had it not been for the fact that she died which is not to say by any means that you know, it was a good thing or anything at all. It was, mum's death was unexpected and very difficult. But it was a couple of years after that I felt I was allowed to do this thing. I think I wouldn't have taken it away from her while she was alive. It would have been very difficult to go into her territory and to say, I'm going to do this, actually. Did you read any of her writing? I did, Mum lived through partition in 47 and 
her subject was India and she really wanted to write about what she saw and experienced and this world that had been lost. And she had a really interesting perspective on it as somebody who wasn't a child of the British Raj, but neither was she an Indian or a Pakistani woman. So she had foots in all sorts of camps. What was difficult for her was that the industry had moved on from people like Paul Scott to wanting to read um, Arundhati Roy and those kind of voices. And she was advised by one agent um, to change her name to something Indian sounding. You know, she was writing at the wrong time to be heard, really, which was really unfair and difficult for her. Did you like her writing? I was too close and too young. At some point, I want to go back and read it again. I'm not ready at the moment, but at some point I will be. Talking about your family, do you think that your father also somehow helped shape your appreciation of the landscape? And did he have any influence on your writing? Not on my writing, but as a human being and as a walker and somebody who was very interested in the past, he absolutely did. He was incredibly determined and incredibly, he had a sort of real single focus. So we used to go to um, Dartmoor in Devon, which is an area of upland granite heath. And uh, it's full of ancient Neolithic stone circles and, you know, amazing remains, half of which are just lost in the bracken. And Dad would set off with his Ordnance Survey map and a compass and, you know, we were going to find an ancient settlement or a stone row or whatever. And we'd spend the afternoon thrashing around in bracken with him going, it must be here somewhere, and us going, can we go home now, Dad? <laughs> you know, and it would be raining and, you know, it was, the, it was the 80s and we'd all be wearing soggy bell-bottom jeans and sweaty cagoules. And, you know, he taught us resilience and he also taught us just curiosity, really. He was so interested in the world around him and he'd always have those uh, little observer books that everyone had in the 70s and 80s, the observer book of British birds, the observer book of pond life, the little pocket-sized books, and we'd look everything up. We couldn't let a, a query rest until we had solved it, and that's become a habit for me. You know, he, he was such a noticer and such a finder-out about things, and that's really stuck with me. It's such a gift. Yeah, seeing the world through the eyes of someone who's interested in everything is just a fantastic thing. Now, Melissa, what are you working on now? Uh, well, uh, I have two children's books coming out this year, um, one in May and one in October, uh, and they are called um, By Ash, Oak and Thorn and By Rowan and You, and they are nature writing for children. It struck me that with nature writing being such a popular area at the moment, it's surprising that there isn't that much for children. And one of the ways in which I encountered the natural world growing up was through books, through writing like Tark of the Otter and Watership Down. And I wondered where those books were now. So I've gone back to one of the books that Mum read us, The Little Grey Men, by an author called B.B. His real name was Dennis Watkins Pitchford. And he was a great sportsman, so he um, hunted and shot. And his book won the Carnegie Medal, which is the, the big children's writing prize in this country, in 1942, I think. And it's a fantastic story about these little uh, gnomes that live out in the wilds of England. And I have revisited it and brought it into the modern world. So I couldn't cope with them all being men. 
So they're not little grey men in, in my book. I've sorted that out. <laughs> <laughs> and they live in cities as well as the countryside. So that's what I've been working on recently. What ages do you think it would be for? Well, I'm told 8 to 12. I feel they're more 6 to 10. But Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, but then that might be because I was quite an early reader, so I'm not sure. I mean, certainly if you were reading them to your children, they would certainly work from 6. Oh, how wonderful. I'm really looking forward to reading them myself, quite frankly, let alone the children. They're great fun. And I've got to say, I shouldn't blow my own trumpet, but they're very funny. And I'm really enjoying the fact, you know, that a lot of the writing I do is quite serious. And nature writing is obviously, you know, it's it's quite sort of serious and elegant and, you know, all of those kind of things. But in person, I'm a bit of a joker. And it's been really nice to actually get that down on the page. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Now, this is another bit of a random question, but can you tell us something about yourself that might be a bit unexpected that we might not know, something you're passionate about or curious about or perhaps a place that you haven't written about as yet that you love? Well, the the thing people are often surprised about when they find out about me was that I'm into dance music. So I worked at Mixmag, which is the world's biggest dance music and club culture magazine, and I was there for Ah. 13 years. And I started going to clubs when I was 18. So that was, what, 1993. You know, towards the beginning of the time in which club culture moved from the underground to the overground. And so events were still held in big derelict warehouses and, you know, had no health and safety and no branding and no, you know, nice drinks sold or anything like that. And it was still very much... The best kind. Oh, it was great. It was a subculture and it was exciting and it felt like we were changing the world. And we were, you know, it was it was really exciting. Um, and I'm 45 now, so I am kind of, well, I was considering myself semi-retired, but um, with COVID, there's nowhere to go anyway. So I guess I live in a little rural village now and that's it. <laughs> Got my walking boots by the door. But are you still going back to the city? Um, well, the plan was to try and spend some time in the city every month. That's been more difficult recently, but I'm hoping this year to get back into a pattern of being in the city as well as here. I think, you know, it's where a lot of my friends are. And I don't think everyone has to choose. You know, you don't, these binaries, they're very limiting. You don't have to be city or country. You don't have to be a dog person or a cat person. You know, you can be both. But it has been a difficult time, as you say. I mean, I just can't imagine in London right now. It just sounds, yeah, it's such a such a different world, isn't it? Yeah. I'm worried for that world of clubs and nightlife. You know, I, I think it's very easily dismissed by politicians, many of whom have never been part of that world at all. I don't know. They're probably going to operas by the time they were 12. A lot. I don't know. <laughs> but they don't seem interested in it. And it generates a huge amount for the economy. And quite apart from that, it's really important to people's creativity and identity. It's hugely vibrant, amazingly culturally fascinating world that at the moment just doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. Strangely, it's almost like the freedom, the freedom that you get outside, outdoors of when you're a kid and kind of running around. And it's a little bit like that, isn't it? There's that kind of utter freedom as an adult that you can get in those contexts. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only nature writer who has a background in dance music. And we, <laughs> we find each other every so often. And, you know, the common ground, I guess, between the two is going out and standing around in fields. <laughs> Festival culture, you know, that's where it crosses over. <laughs> 
Yeah. Now, what would you tell a young writer starting out that you wish you'd known yourself in those early years? The thing I wished that I had known earlier and that I do try and tell people when I meet them is that you don't have to plan a novel in order to write one. I spent a long time not writing, partly because I was scared of failure, but also because I didn't think I had an idea for a book. I would look at other people's finished books and wonder how they they had the idea for that book. And my head was kind of, you know, empty with tumbleweed blowing around in it. And actually, I've still never had an idea for a book and I've published several. The fact is you can start and just, you know, you step out over the edge of the cliff into the chasm and you lay the railway track beneath your feet as you go. You can assemble a novel from fragments and it turns out that the method that I used with clay is still the one that I use. I, It's a collage. I write bits and pieces and my brain will eventually put them together and work out what it's about. I don't start with plot, I start with setting, I start with place and theme and then characters come and eventually the plot comes and it's not a very efficient method because I don't have to go back and you know weave it in but it that's the way it works for me and and I think if I had waited to have an idea for a finished book I never would have started. So if you're not somebody with a head full of stories doesn't mean you can't write a novel. Oh, thank you. That's really wonderful advice. Lastly, would you read something for us, Melissa? I'd really love to hear an extract from whatever book you would like to read. It would be really wonderful to end on that. Of course. I'm going to read from All Among the Barley, and this is a a short section from the opening of the book. The autumn of that year was the most beautiful I can remember. For weeks after harvest tide, the weather stayed fine, and only slowly that year did summer's warmth leave the earth. In October, witch farms' trees turned quickly and all at once, blazing into oranges and reds and burnished golds. With little wind to strip them, the woods and spinneys lay on our land like treasure. The massy hedgerows filigreed with old man's beard and enamelled with rose hips and black sloes. Along the winding course of the River Stound, the alder cars were studded with earth stars and chanterelles and dense with the rich autumnal stink of rot. But crossing long peace towards the Lottens, the sky opened into austere equinoctial blue where flocks of peewits wheeled and turned, flashing their broad wings black and white. At dawn, dew silvered the spider's silk strung between the grass blades in our pastures so that the horses left trails where they walked like the wakes of slow vessels in still water. At last, wintering field fairs and thrushes stripped the berries from the lanes and at night, the four tall elms for which the farm was named welcomed their cold-weather congregations of rooks. The dew dampened the stubble in the parched cornfields, drawing from it a mocking green aftermath that had Grandfather recalling the flock of purebred ewes that once were overwintered on the land. It's not worth the shearing of them these days, Father said. I've told you that. I wholly mislike good fodder going to waste, the old man replied, banging his stick upon the floor. And that's a fact. 
Thank you for that beautiful reading. Melissa, one more question before we end. Will there be another podcast? (laughs) I hope so. We both love making it. We did need a rest, um, but we do have an idea for something that we'd like to make. We're just trying to find out how we can do it because doing six months of work, I mean, you know, we decided we weren't going to monetize that podcast because it was a gift to the world in a moment of crisis. But we're trying to find a way to make something and um, to be able to give it the time that it needs and deserves. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Melissa, thank you so much for your time today. It's been so lovely to speak with you after having long admired your work, your writing. It's been such a pleasure, Gemma. Thank you. And I recommend everyone listening finds copies of Melissa's books in their local bookshops or orders them immediately. And you can start with any title. And, of course, don't forget that podcast. It will transport you to another magic and bucolic world. Thank you, Melissa. (laughs) 